She doesn't like your queen, does she? Sansa thinks she's smarter than everyone. She's the smartest person I've ever met. Well, you're defending her. <laughs> you. I'm defending our family. So is she. I'm her family too. Don't forget that. Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I haven't read most of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson, and I've read every book in George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Welcome to the show, everyone. What we do here on A Cast of Kings every week is we dissect in graphic detail every episode of the HBO original series Game of Thrones... Uh, but we don't spoil anything from future week's episodes, and that includes anything on the next time on preview uh, that HBO often airs after the show. You can find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can also email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. That's acastofkings at gmail.com. And find us on Twitter and Facebook at acastofkings. I also want to point out that this season we'll be broadcasting every episode live. Uh, and in order to find that live broadcast, all you got to do is go to twitter.com slash acastofkings. And we generally will broadcast Monday nights, but uh, follow us on Twitter and Periscope uh, at acastofkings. Uh, and you can get notifications whenever we go live. So uh, we may read some comments in the chat room during the course of this episode. But uh, yeah, that's what we'll be doing this season of the show. Now, eagle-eyed, eagle-eared uh, listeners may have also noticed that uh, John Robinson and I have been doing some media appearances to promote the show, right? We got we got to get the word out about the show, Joanna, right? So have, have people heard about Game of Thrones? <laughs> it's <laughs> it is bizarre as so many people have not heard about Game of Thrones. But anyway, in any case, um, you might have seen an article in the San Francisco Chronicle about John Robinson talking about her relationship to the show, and John Robinson and I were bo- also both honored to recently appear in. Uh, NPR on NPR, uh, all things considered, talked to Elsa Chang about the show, uh, and that was such a delight to do. Um, so really grateful to NPR for having us on, um, and uh, grateful to everyone for checking out that segment. You can find it uh, online. Uh, it was part of All Things Considered. We'll also link to it in the show notes. Uh, so all that said, John Robinson, why don't we get into the actual episode itself, season. Eight, episode one, entitled Winterfell. It was interesting. I, I, I think millions of people uh, were ready to hop on their HBO Now or HBO Go or whatever uh, to play the episode when it went live. And when it went live, there was no episode name, right? Like that was my experience of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, HBO, I knew that HBO was not releasing the episode titles until the night of, that they weren't going to announce them in advance because people, you know, sort of lose their minds speculating over what they might be called. Or maybe there's some sort of added back end hacking precaution or something like that involved in that. But it's very unusual, let's say, for uh, a TV series to not announce what its episode titles are. Uh, so I knew HBO was not announcing until night of, but I didn't know they weren't announcing them until after i think after the east coast feed had gone all the way through yeah so. as of, like when i got to the end of the episode there was still no name on there yeah 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 it's, it's amazing I, I googled like uh recaps to try to find the name and like some of the recaps were written without any reference to the name of the episode oh yeah um, yeah so absolutely. that was that was crazy <laughs> i never had that experience before but yeah uh the final name of season eight episode one is winterfell 
and uh, you know, I, I got super jazzed. Can, can do you mind sharing how you watched the episode, Jenna? I'm just curious. Like, set the scene for us. <laughs> um, mine was a three screen experience. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had it uh, going on my desktop monitor because that's the biggest screen at my desk, uh, and then I had the iPad open to some like various chat rooms and then I was on my laptop also working. So nice. that's how I saw it the first time, but I usually, you know, I watch it several times. And so at least one of the times I watch the episode, I will watch it in like a night, you know, like on my TV and like sort of a nice, uh, nicer format than like three, three screens staring back at me. But that's the initial, the initial experience. How about you? What's the, what's the scene in your house? Yeah. So I, I have the, I have my OLED TV, the LG C8, which is like amazing television and uh, I have a kind of little little man cave in here, which also doubles as my office and also studio where I make YouTube videos. And uh, I, I was just like, at the time, just hitting refresh on HBO Now until the episode appeared. And then right at like 5.59 p.m. or 6 p.m., it went live and just hit play. That's, that's basically the whole thing. And uh, this week, I actually happened to be taking notes because uh, I started a little Game of Thrones discussion group at my place of employment. So fun. Uh, which is which is Amazon, and uh, we have a little discussion group, uh, and I used as a reference guide, like I actually put it up on the screen during the discussion group today, uh, the best Game of Thrones recapper in the United States, Joanna Robinson's articles uh, on Vanity Fair, <laughs> and uh, you should check, jo- Joanna works so hard on this, and she, you know, I, I'm going to embarrass her by saying all this, but um, she works so hard, and in my opinion, she's the best. At doing this, and uh, if you enjoy this podcast, if you are reading her stuff, go to Vanity Fair, check out her recaps, pay, for, subscribe to the paywall. Uh, it's worth it, um, and check out her stuff on Sunday nights when it goes live. It's the best explanation of what's happening on Game of Thrones on the internet. So, just wanted to throw that plug out there before we get into the show. <laughs> Thank um, you. I'm really jealous that I don't get to be part of your Game of Thrones work. Uh, you know, chat. Well, maybe we, sounds... maybe we can Skype you in sometime. Um, oh my god, please! Can I can I make a guest appearance? That yes, that would be, so that would be fun. People would be I'd love it. it. Um, so anyway, uh, I was shocked. I, I was like stunned, John Robinson, when the episode begins this week, and it is a completely new set of opening credits. I thought of you. I mean, I heard about that. Lost my mind. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, wasn't it? Wasn't it? So, like, was it so cool? Did you think it was cool? I thought it was so cool. Right. Uh, um, I just remembered uh, all the times when there was like a minor change and you would lose your mind, <laughs> and I was like, his brain must be like oozing out of his ears. Like when when you know it's it's an it's one thing that the the walls down and all that sort of stuff, but when the the quote unquote camera of the opening sequence zooms into, into a building, right? A building. I was like, Dave Chen's is probably screaming right now. Um, <laughs> I was so, in yeah. I was in awe, and so there's many articles about this online. Um, um, Elastic is the company that made the opening credits, and uh, it, it, they've taken a whole different approach for the opening credits this year, right? So there's a few differences uh, to point out. One of them is that uh, the opening credits in previous seasons uh, were done in such a way that they're pretty abstract, right? There, there was not that much like detail on these buildings. It was kind of this abstract, like, oh, this person's like making a little like uh, gear set out of these cities, and you know, pretty abstract. Not really like a real life representation of these places. Um, this one is much more detailed, first of all, right? Yeah. Like they, it goes into buildings. 
um, there's a, there's a lot more going on. Like there's there's movement in every frame of these opening credits. Um, but the uh, previous opening credits also took us to all the different locations in Westeros and beyond uh, that we might visit during the course of the episode. And of course, uh, with so many characters dying, there's really only a few locations now, right? It's like the wall, well, the wall's gone, right? So there's the wall, um, Winterfell, King's Landing, and uh, what's that, the other place that was introduced this week, right? Last Hearth. Last Hearth. Yeah, right? you know, yeah, we used to talk about this all the time that like there were some consistent things that this map would always do. It would always take us to Winterfell. It would always take us to that like ending sequence where you go sort of up the wall, yeah. you know, and then, and then also it would, it would let us know where Daenerys was in Essos, right? Like we would zoom over to Essos <laughs> and where, <laughs> yeah. where, where is Daenerys this week? But like, you know, Melisandra is over in Essos, but other than that, you know, and the Iron Bank is obviously there, but like, other than that, like, I don't think we're going to spend any time in Essos at all. So like there are options for filling that time. It's sort of like stretch for time. You know what I mean? It's like when you can't zoom around all these different locations, but you still need to do the entire Ramin Javadi opening credits, uh, song and, uh, include all the people's names, all the new names that are on the screen this year. Um, uh, then you need to figure out something else to do. So they're like, we'll go deeper. Right. We'll dig deeper. Yeah. So uh, a bunch of Easter eggs to point out. Well, I, I think it's a very canny move to extend the opening credits, right? And uh, I, I do agree that it's done very well. Uh, but I also think, like, based on the interviews I've read with the people at Elastic, that there was, like, um, it, it was stuff that they had always wanted to do. But, I mean, the original thing came out, like, what, eight or nine years ago, right? So, like, uh, the show was basically like it had barely been formed, had barely been birthed back then. So they had all these ideas and they could never integrate them. And now, like, is there was their chance to integrate them? So you had like you see things like the crypt right uh, underneath Winterfell. You see like the whole like crossbow and dragon thingy underneath uh, King's Landing, underneath the throne room. Like there's all these like cool elements. The the uh, blue tiles flipping indicate uh, the advancing uh, knight. King army uh, down south, right? Or coming south. Mm -hmm. uh, anything else stick out to you about the opening credit sequence you want to mention, Joanna Robinson? Um, I have a theory about it, but we'll talk about that maybe at the end of the season. But yeah. I, have a th I have an added theory as to why it is uh, the way it is. Um, All right. Which I which I'm very intrigued by. Mm. Also, yeah, it, you know, if you're, there's all these cool artistic elements. And then of course I'm like scanning to see who got a promotion uh, from like, <laughs> from, like supervising producer to executive producer and stuff like that. Um, I think it's really interesting that David Nunner and Miguel Sapochnik, who are along with Weiss and Benioff are the two directors for this season are exec have executive producer mm. credits this year, which is unusual. Um, you know, certainly uh, for Game of Thrones and unusual in general. And then like some other people just like bumped up from regular old producer to executive producer. So it's just like, okay, everyone's getting paid this year. Everyone is just like, everyone's agent is like, guess who's getting paid this year? It's us. <laughs> um, yeah. is, is your theory that this whole thing, it takes place in like a guy, like someone playing a game with an astrolab and like, it's all in someone's head. Is that, I'm just, <laughs> just guessing what your theory might be. Uh, no, that's been a theory for a while that it's sort of like one. I think they said it was like, I think the people who make the opening sequence said that it was like some maester in a tower somewhere. Right, right. Sort of how he was looking at, at Westeros. No, no, no. That's not my theory. I'll just say one last thing about the opening credits, which is that um, the kind of little murals on the gigantic astrolab are different this year. Right. Yeah. Uh, and what's really cool about them is 
the idea is that like the the murals previous to the season uh, show stuff that happened before season one, right? Yeah. And the mm-hmm. idea of the murals this season, uh, if you can call them murals, designs, I don't know what the technical term is, but the idea is that like the stuff you have been watching in the show itself yeah. has now become lore, right? And is now like uh, been enshrined in this astrolabe and other uh, illustrations. And I thought that was like very cool. So you see like, um, for instance, a uh, a beheaded... Uh, wolf, right, which is like kind of a, a symbol of the Stark house and like that's kind of indicative of the of the beheading of Ned Stark and so on. So I thought that was also a very nice touch. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The red wedding is there. You've got like the flayed man holding up um, the wolf head and stuff like that. And um, yeah, it's 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 kind of fun. They must have had a really fun time with that. It's so funny though because like I know you and I have done this every year where we're like, is there a slight difference in the opening credits? Let's talk about it. Um, but I know a bunch of people who went to premiere and told me all this stuff, and I didn't find out like until days later. I mentioned something about the opening credits, and someone was like, oh yeah, the opening credits are different. And I was like, oh how different. <laughs> and they're like, oh they like they like go to the buildings. So I was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> I know. What? I, I lost I, I lost my mind. I'm like, dude, already. It, it was worth it just the episode was worth it just for this moment alone. Dave turns it off after two minutes. I'm and done. He's like, cool. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Uh, anyway, uh, hope you enjoy the new opening credits. And if you listener enjoy unraveling the mysteries of things like the Game of Thrones opening credits and like picking out all the details, then we'd like to introduce you to our first sponsor, Hunt a Killer. Hunt a Killer is a monthly subscription game where you become a detective immersed in a murder mystery. Jonah Robinson, what do you what do you think about Hunt a Killer here? Oh my god. I okay, so if you if you followed me for years covering Game of Thrones, you know I love nothing more than hunting down a clue. I am obsessed with this sort of thing. This is the kind of thing I do all the time when I watch TV shows. I'm putting things together. I really have always wanted to be a detective. Uh, so please send me your best fedoras in the mail um, and I will become a detective for you. But what I love about how to kill it is that I can do that without, I don't know, quitting my day job. This really cool package <laughs> comes to your home and you get to do this puzzle. The thing I really love about this though, Dave, and then like, I love a scavenger hunt. I love all kinds of stuff like this is that how to kill is actually quite challenging. I'm used to these things being like really easy to solve and you're like, okay, yawn on to the next thing. But how to kill is actually like really, it will get your friends to come over and help you because it is really fun and challenging. I think it's very clear. We we have learned, John Robinson, that like people who listen to the show love theorizing. They love speculating. They love uh, picking apart clues. And if you love those things, then like Hunter Killer is a great kind of program. And basically, it shows up in this box. And like here, I'm rustling. I'm rustling papers next to the microphone. Like this is all all the stuff that came with the first box. <laughs> and so you can hear. And it's like very authentic, right? So like. What a luxurious uh, rustle that luxurious is. luxurious rustling, you know? Um, so, like, each month you receive crime scene photos, evidence, motive, and suspect information that you need to use to solve a crime. It's, like, interactive, and um, it's perfect to play either by yourself, during date night, with friends. And there's over 60,000 other people who have joined the Hunter Killer online community. Uh, uh, and Hunter Killer has over 5,000 five-star reviews. So if you're kind of interested in, like, getting into a mystery... Uh, Hunter Killer is a great way to do it. Like I'm just looking at these materials right now. There's like a, a high school yearbook that looks authentic, like newspaper clippings, police reports that like looks really authentic, and you gotta kind of kind of read it and like digest and like figure out uh, what the solution to the mystery is. It's super cool, and I think we have a deal with Jonah Robinson for our listeners, right? 
Yeah, if right now, just for you guys, you can go to huntakiller.com slash kings for 20% off your first box. They only accept 200 members per day. So hurry, take advantage of this offer. That's huntakiller.com slash kings for 20% off your first box. Huntakiller.com slash kings. See if you have what it takes to get into the mind of a serial killer and solve the mystery. I know you do, Dave Chen. I try. I try, you know? <laughs> All right. So uh, let's move on uh, to something that comes after the opening credits, which is uh, Winterfell, right? And you wrote a great article of Vanity Fair about callbacks that this uh, episode had to earlier seasons. And uh, if you recognize the music, the cinematography, the actions of a small boy climbing uh, to see <laughs> things, to see an army marching into Winterfell, then uh, you recognize that this was a callback to uh, the first episode of the show. All right, uh, we don't know who the boy is, right? It's just a kid in Winterfell, right? Um, and uh, you, you see Queen Danny and King John arrive in Winterfell, uh, and Arya used to be like some. Well, she used to be like at the end of the procession. Now she's just kind of lurking uh, along with other people. And you see, she kind of sees all these people come in. John come in, Gendry, the Hound, and like all these people kind of register on her face. Yeah. Uh, and then, as you write here, Grey Worm and Missende get stared at by white people because it, uh, you know a lot of people pointed out this is probably the first black people that these people living in Winterfell have ever seen, right? This uh, is another moment where I was like questioning my spies on the inside of the premiere at Radio City Music Hall because I guess, yep. Yeah, I only talk to white people, and not a single person brought up this moment, which I thought was just like this great moment of Masande and Grey Worm like getting side eye from these like awful, you know, bigoted Northerners. It seemed like, and them such sort of making meaningful eye contact with each other, being like, "All right, here we are, let's do this." Um, yeah, I thought it was a really good moment. Yeah, uh, so a lot of good moments throughout this episode, including that one at the end of the procession. Sansa and Bran greet John, and uh, John kind of gives Bran a hug. And oh, so many emotional moments with John this episode, John Robinson. I mean, and, and we should say overall, I'm I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of this episode. I've, I thought it was oh, very, very solid. There's okay. some glaring weaknesses, but like <laughs> o- overall, it was pretty solid. And I noticed that like John hugs like I don't know three to four people in this episode, and every single one of those people has information or something in their past that is going to affect John in a really negative way. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, but it's still nice to see because like the last time we saw John and Bran was in, I want to say season one, episode two. Right. Right. When or, he or left, episode, when he left yeah. and they had that, he had that tense confrontation with Cad and then he leaves and it's like, Oh, they're finally together again. That's very nice. Yeah. I, he, you know, Bran was in a coma essentially when John left and he gave him like a nice little kiss on the forehead, his little brother. And he did the same thing for Bran, uh, in this episode, gave him a nice little kiss on the forehead. But I, um, I will say one of my delights of this episode was watching how much people seem to be enjoying Bran this season. Like maybe for the first time in his entire run on the show, Isaac Hempstead, right. Is enjoying the actor who plays Bran is enjoying the, like the warm glow of being like, a above, fan above favorite <laughs> <laughs> no like a meme like like twitter loves bran and mm. people are really into it and i it's it's funny i talked to him uh for this other podcast i do still watching i interviewed him a couple weeks ago or last week maybe about i was like so how are you gonna make bran interesting i'm a little worried about this basically is what i asked him and he's like oh, we have a plan. And I was like, okay. And then I guess that plan just involves him sitting there and staring creepily, but it's just, 
it's like oddly hilarious and mm. great. I don't know. I was, I was really into all the brand stuff in this episode. Um, but yeah, you've got a ton of callbacks that, that score callback is so interesting because King Robert's theme, I believe is what it's called. And we have, we just don't hear, like there are certain themes that when a character dies, it gets sort of recycled back into the mix. Like, one of Catelyn's themes, which sort of became this honor theme. Kind of like a star, um, the Stark theme is how I think of it, yeah. No, uh, her, well, Catelyn's theme is different. The Stark theme has been consistent throughout, but like Catelyn Tully had her own theme that didn't die with her. You know what I mean? She mm. dies, but the Catelyn theme kind of became the brand theme. Mm. You know, I talked to Ramin Jawadi about this, about like about um, characters inheriting other people's themes. But King Robert's theme didn't really get inherited. It's this very bombastic, like sort of almost throwbacky thing. So, you know, my ears are bad at picking out themes on the show. But like right. even I perked up and I was like, here we go. It's it's we're back to season one, episode one. Like, it's, I, I think Ramin Jawadi's, Jawadi's work is like uh, superlative on the show. So don't take this the wrong way. But it's, it's basically like the music that you hear at like a renaissance fair. Am I right? Like that's, yeah, the, that's it's, the theme. And, yeah. and I think that's like almost what he's going for. Right, honestly. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like all the Brathians at this point are, are dead, right? Is that right? Um, yeah. So like that's unless probably. You, unless you count Gendry, which. Oh, yeah. You know. That's true. You, you know, tough. Um, but yeah, we definitely hear that, hear the theme come back this episode. Uh, and then they uh, they have this kind of meeting with uh, Sansa and Bran and John and uh, Danny's overall gets like a pretty tough reaction. I think there's a many there's many reasons for that, right? Because first of all, uh, people swore fealty to Jon Snow, um, but also like the Targaryen rule uh, was let's say a mixed bag at best, right? Uh, over Westeros. Yeah, uh, you know uh, her dad burned um ned's <laughs> father and brother alive and stuff like that um the well <laughs> little things like that you know burn burn slash choke yeah you know something that um i think is really f- important to remember in these first few episodes of the season and um one that that the executive producers are really you know pushing is that the characters on the show are not watching the show right so sansa being so frosty towards daenerys is because she's not seen Daenerys's story, you know, along with the rest of right. us. She's yeah. just gotten these rumors of this scary lady with these dragons, um, you know, roasting Tarleys and slave masters and stuff like that. And so, like, you know, Daenerys's reputation, you know, I can see how if you hear it from another, from secondhand, and you've got this northern sort of uh, knee-jerk resentment towards the Targaryens, that... Bottom line is this Sansa's saltiness, which bothered me so much last season with all the Arya stuff, which felt so manufactured. It didn't read as unreasonable to me in this episode. Thanks to his courage, we have brought with us the greatest army the world has ever seen. We have brought two full grown dragons. And soon the Lannister army will ride north to join our cause. I know, I know, our people haven't been friends in the past. But we must fight together now. Or die. May I ask, how are we meant to feed the greatest army the world has ever seen? While I ensured our stores would last through winter, I didn't account for Dothraki, Unsullied, and two full-grown dragons. 
What do dragons eat, anyway? Whatever they want. You know, she could have been maybe a little warmer generally, but like, honestly, I was just sort of like, yeah, <laughs> who is going to feed all these troops? Sansa has been responsibly like with her ledgers, monitoring <laughs> the grain intake, making all, you know, we saw her last season do this, like, you know, storing up all the food. She's got this whole system down. She takes her responsibility of Winterfell, Lady of Winterfell very seriously. And then John's like, cool. Can you also feed these Dothraki and Unsullied and these dragons? And she's like, are you kidding me though? And this hasn't even been a conversation. And this is all before she learns that Cersei who tormented her for seasons is now supposed to be their ally. So Sansa's, frustrations I think are really warranted in this episode yeah at no point did it occur to me that she was being unreasonable I I, I rebuke anyone who thinks so um I think she's she's arguably the smartest character in the in this episode uh, I think, right uh, uh, in this episode yeah in this episode yeah I, I kind of uh reject a little bit this sort of rewriting of like Sansa Stark is the smartest person in the entire show yeah. ever because I still have issues with the Battle of the Bastards and how all that went down agree but but I don't mind Arya defending her. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And and Tyrion certainly hasn't had a good idea in a while, which you and I talked about. And so for Sansa to, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but for Sansa to sort of cut him down and say, you know, I used to think you were the smartest man I know. Like, I'm like, he earned that of late, uh, how he's been behaving lately. So anyway, yeah, this this whole, and what what's helped, you know, I think they had to really work to calibrate this because I think, you know, the, the showrunners say that they don't listen to fan feedback, but I think the Arya and Sansa stuff was was pretty, like, universally unpopular last season. Yay. And, and so I think that they really wanted to make sure that they sort of balance the whole equation. So you give some stuff, like, to Liana, Liana Mormont. She's the one going, like, really hard at John in this meeting. Right. Sansa's going a little hard, but, like, Liana's going really hard at her, at him. Uh, and so, you know, just sort of like spread the wealth and like, don't let it just be Sansa sort of taking this stand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed, uh, completely. And so there's a scene in the great hall where, uh, they tell little Ned Umber to get his men at last hearth and come back. Like, and presumably they send like more horses and, and, and other supplies to go get his men. Right. That's what happens. Um, and Little Ned Umber, uh, he, it was agreed upon that he would be the head of the House of Umber after the Battle of the Bastards. Am I correct about that? Yeah, Sansa wanted to like this is this is when like Sansa was uh, maybe too much of a hard ass last season when she wanted to turn Ned Umber and Alice Karstark, these two little kids who inherited their houses, out of their castles and give it give it to a family that was more loyal to House Stark was sort of her idea. And uh, Jon Snow was like, nope, like, we're going to give these kids a chance. We're not going to, like, hold them accountable for the sins of their fathers. Um, here we go. Let's, you know, and it's so like Ned Umber is so tiny, um, <laughs> you know, and, and this is obviously not the last we've seen of him. But I do love his introduction because he's sitting, like, behind a grown ass right, man. Right. And it's like Lord Umber. And he just sort of, like, pops his pops whole body up, yeah. out. Yeah, it's really cute. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Uh, so they, uh, he, he goes to, uh, get his men at last hearth and hopefully that's going to go well. I, uh, I, I, what could possibly go wrong? Nothing. So little. Um, <laughs> so then, uh, as you mentioned, Tyrion and Sansa have their scene talking about like the, um, uh, the, the new alliance that has formed. And I felt like it was one of several meta moments that happened in the show. Like early on when, when Sansa and Bran greet John in the courtyard, Bran's like, we don't have time for this. I felt like it was like the, the showrunners being like, 
hey, folks, like we got to speed through a bunch of these developments today because there's so little time to get done what we need to get done. And then later on, Sansa says to Tyrion, like, I used to think you were the cleverest man alive. Um, and kind of kind of reinforcing the fact that Tyrion is, for whatever reason, not that smart anymore. Uh, and the audience and Sansa both know it. Yeah, and I, I just think that we, you know, we, you and I talked about this, I think, in our preview episode. I think if you go back to the end of season four, when he's like put on trial, <laughs> his his sister and his father are trying to kill him. Like Tyrion just never really recovered from that moment. Certainly not in the books. Tyrion mm-hmm. never really recovers to the height of his powers after that because he, you know, like that's a traumatic experience. That his trial. Um, all of that. And so I think you can pinpoint that as sort of like the beginning of a change for Tyrion uh, in terms of how he approaches the world. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you're right that there are these these meta moments and Bran is fairly inconsistent with his like what we don't have time for. We don't have time to discuss that your dragon is now undead and the wall is down the dead are marching. But I do have time to sit in a courtyard for fully like a day and a night to wait for Jamie Lannister to come back. So, um, you know, Bran's sense of what we do and don't have time for is is. Uh, quite subjective, I would say. I thought it was also weird. I rewatched the last scene with Bran in it, and he's like, he's saying, you know, Jon Snow isn't uh, isn't Jon Snow. He's actually a sand. And then he needs Samwell to tell him that actually, no, he's like a legitimate child, right? And it's like, so right. what are what are Bran's powers? He can see some stuff, but not everything. It, it felt really weird to me, like they were making it so that Bran was purposely limited. So that Sam could kind of help him put together the case. Yeah, yeah. you need two, you need two. You need like the search engine and the person doing the searching and stuff like that. Right. I think um, I asked Isaac Hempstead right about this uh, when I talked to him for Still Watching podcast, and he, I don't know if it was just like a clever dodge uh, or what, but he was like, oh. I don't know. I'll have to ask the producers exactly what Brad's powers are. Like he was just sort of like, I don't really know, and honestly. Much love to the showrunners of Game of Thrones. I think they're going to keep it, uh, you know, to the end of their days, fairly ambiguous, the extent of Bran's powers. Because what you have here, right, is um, a premise-breaking uh, <laughs> yeah. person. If Bran knows everything, it, it just really wrecks your ability to tell this story, I yep, think. Yep. Um, and so what they're doing, it seems like, is saying Bran can see everything, but he can't maybe interpret everything that he can see. And maybe mm. he's getting better. Like, I think, you know, and, and that makes sense, right? He got all these powers. He saw all these things. And so he can just sort of see everything all the time. But maybe he can't really categorize it yet. And that's something that Sam can help him with, help him interpret what he sees. Um, but then also with experience with those powers, maybe he'll get better at it. So the idea that he was like sitting in that courtyard waiting for Jamie Lannister, which once again, I know I keep jumping to the end of the episode, but like that is him using his powers, I guess, in a somewhat slightly different way than we've seen him do it. You know what I mean? Where he was like, Jamie Lannister is definitely coming here. I don't know when. Maybe it's tonight. Maybe it's tomorrow. I'm just going to sit here until he gets here sort of thing. Um, so it's sort of like he knows but doesn't always understand what he knows at the same time, which is maybe a bit of a cheat, but it's preferable to just someone who knows everything all the time because then you can't have any kind of intrigue uh, in your in your story. It's like uh, Minority Report, you know, that that uh, movie, the Steven Spielberg oh, movie, right? And, you I know, sure do. So, so in Minority Report, they could see what the precog saw. And yeah. it would be like, you know, mid, like, uh, like, you know, t- t- uh, 
five bedroom five bedroom home mid century architecture, you know, and then they would need to become like experts on architecture to like find <laughs> the location. Uh, yeah. So they, you kind of get one piece of the puzzle and not the other, but you know um, that that appears to be how they're gonna how they're gonna play Brand's powers uh, this season. Of course, Sansa mentions that uh, the. Uh, or Danny and Sansa talk about how the dragons need to eat something, and and she's like, "What do dragons eat?" And Danny says, "Like whatever they want," which is kind of like, I wonder if she's being metaphorical. So uh, they they need to figure out a way to get the dragons to eat. That's what I thought this kind of dragon flight was for, was like for them to go get something to eat. But um, you know, uh, if you, the listener, want something to eat, then I think you would enjoy our second sponsor for the evening. Which is HelloFresh. HelloFresh wow. is a meal <laughs> kit delivery. Are you? Are you? Is that good? You like that? Um, dazzled, dazzled. Thank you. Uh, HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients, so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. Jonah Robinson, you've used HelloFresh. Like, what has been your experience with them? I love. I genuinely love HelloFresh. Um, the I've chosen when I've done the HelloFresh in the past, I've chosen the vegan option. And I really love that because it really challenges you. You're like a meal without meat. However, could I do that? Uh, turns out, um, beautifully and easily with some like fresh pre-measured ingredients, easy to follow six picture, uh, six step picture recipe cards and everything just comes to your door pre-measured pre-packaged, but the package is not like onerous. You can recycle everything like a good Californian should. Uh, and I, I really love, uh, cooking meals with HelloFresh. I still keep my recipe cards after I've cooked the meals. Cause I'm like, I'm going to make this again even without the pre-measured stuff because it's it was so good the first time around. So do you, do you want to know the best part about one of the best parts about HelloFresh? What is one of the is, best parts? Is you use max like two pots or pans. And so the dishes, like the cleanup yep. is much easier than usual. Yeah, all meals come together in 30 minutes max. Uh, and yeah, very, very easy to clean up. Um, and it, there's multiple plans to choose from. There's like classic, veggie, and family with the option to switch uh, between for whenever your tastes change. Um, so yeah, if, if you're having trouble getting out of that rut, that rut of like what to eat, you know, which can be <laughs> very you, difficult if, to decide. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, if, you, if you're a dragon and you're just like, oh, only seven goats today. Maybe, <laughs> I, maybe I want some greatery in my diet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then HelloFresh might be, uh, you know, it's good for humans. I don't know if it's good for dragons. Fair uh, enough. But it's definitely good for, for humans. And uh, we'd really recommend it. I mean, it's just, it's like, if you if you can't figure it out, you know, like often people get like paralysis of like what to eat and HelloFresh decides for you it's a great meal it's easy to prepare it's easy to clean up uh, so John Robinson I think we have a deal for our listeners right we've got nothing but deals for you tonight for $80 off your first month of HelloFresh go to HelloFresh.com slash Kings 80 and enter Kings 80 that's $80 off your first month HelloFresh go to HelloFresh.com slash Kings 80 and enter Kings 80 okay so let's talk about this dragon romance scene John Robinson which is like you know they kind of fly away and I, I have to say, I think this is probably the low point of the episode for me. Right? Hard agree. Uh, Hard agree. For for a variety of reasons. Uh, number one, it's it's just really kind of cheesy. Like a lot of a whole new world from Aladdin references online. A lot of memes about that. Um, and uh, also, like the the CG, I thought was very inconsistent this episode. Yeah. Uh, like some of the wide shots of the dragons look great. But they, this show, in my opinion, has never really nailed the look of a person riding a dragon. 
like when they cut to that close up and it looks like they're in a studio riding on a dragon shaped harness that's like with wind blowing in their face. Uh, it just never quite looks right, unfortunately. And yeah, what do you think? Uh, yeah, and I think I think Amelia Clark has gotten like remember that first time when she gets um rescued from the Drasnik pit, the fighting yep. pit that we all sort of like laughed at because it looked like fairly silly. Right. Um, and then I think it's only gotten better, especially as Daenerys has gotten like tinier. She almost like just disappears on Drogon's back and you're just sort of like, okay, there's, I'm just going to assume Daenerys is up there somewhere. Um, and I think Amelia Clark has gotten better at her sort of like fierce. I'm riding a dragon face sort of thing. Kit Harrington looked like an, absolute idiot on the back of that dragon and that's kind of the point because Jon Snow's never ridden dragon so you know he's having his first ride but I don't know it's just like it's just it was so goofy it's so it goofy. was so good like this whole episode is fairly goofy and I think it, a lot of it is just there's just like a lot of slapstick in this episode and I think a lot of it is um a sort of light calm before the storm right. because uh, I mean I don't think it's gonna stay goofy all season but um but yeah this this thing is like it's a big moment in the in the fandom in the lore of like you know people for decades have thought okay Jon Snow is a secret Targaryen Jon Snow is gonna ride a dragon like this is a big deal and like it's treated so flippantly it's like he's like how do I ride a dragon she's like you just try I don't know and you know in in the I rarely have moments to still be like a, a stick in the mud like book reader anymore but like people have been barbecued for trying to ride a dragon like all over the place in the books. You know what I mean? Like you don't do it unless you're a Targaryen. And at this point, neither of them know he's a Targaryen and she's just being like, then I've enjoyed your company, Jon Snow, you know, <laughs> and they like go for this ride and it's just, I, uh, yeah, le least favorite part of all of this. Something I did note in that flashbacks articles, uh, in that flashback article that you mentioned is that, uh, they go up North, they see this beautiful waterfall. And I believe, um, Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark, you know, went to Iceland or whatever to film this, but, um, you see this beautiful waterfall and then, you know, they smooch and it is very reminiscent of Jon Snow in the cave with Egret. And I was like, does this guy only have like one playbook that he's playing from when he, <laughs> when he romances a lady? If like, it ain't like, broke, don't fix it. That's what <laughs> I, I mean, say. it was broke with Egret. Let's be real. Mm, mm. <laughs> So, yeah. a, a romance that <laughs> ended perfectly. Um, so, <laughs> because Ollie was involved somehow. Anyway, mm -hmm. so, uh, I, I mean, many reactions to this. First of all, like, I, I don't know that it's been fully established in the show that only Targaryens can ride dragons. Has it been? Um, I mean, I, I don't think you've ever had someone say, like, only Targaryens can ride dragons. But correct. it's That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no one has said that explicitly. <laughs> yeah, no one has, like, spelled it out. But it's just sort of like, I it's don't know. It's heavily implied. It's heavily implied. Thank you. Saying. Thank yes. you. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. And the, the, the show treated it uh, with, without the gravity that people were hoping that it would. Uh, and I think that's totally legit criticism. Um, also, have you seen How to Train Your Dragon 3, The Hidden World? Of course. Yeah. So that was not my favorite How to Train Your Dragon film. It's an animated film. Is I, I still think the first one is the best. You mean co-starring Kit Harrington? That film? Yes. <laughs> Another Kit Harrington movie involving dragon riding, and uh, <laughs> that movie. Like I, I didn't think How to Train Your Dragon three was a great film, but one thing it nails is dragons nailing. If that makes sense. Like, and what I mean by that is like there's a dragon romance sequence of dragons flying uh -huh. around. Uh -huh. uh, that's like so beautiful and so moving. Uh, and then to watch that a few months ago and then to watch this, this silliness was a huge come down. Um, I, I will 
I am I want to call it's DreamWorks, right? That does yes. How to Train Dragon. Yeah. I want to call them up and say, have you considered putting Dave Chen saying the one thing it nails is dragon nailing on all of your pack, uh, like at home packaging. Yeah, they really should get right on that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. No, I'm glad you're always such a big advocate for me, John. Fun for the whole family. <laughs> uh, I mean, that movie does have a lot of like dragon fucking in it. I'm just going to put that out there. But anyway, uh, but like, not... obliquely, they just like sort of soar through the sky together. But, Joanna, uh, we're not here to talk about how to train a dragon three. Okay. As much as I would love to do that, all all episode. Um, yeah, so really disappointing. Now, there was this moment when they're making out, and the dragon kind of gives... I don't know which dragon it was. Um, Drogon? Which, whichever one? Anyway, it gives him this look. And Drogon. how did you interpret that look? Because I, I think there's a lot of ways you could have interpreted it. Um. So, I mean, not to keep talking about this other podcast I do, but like I've been spending the last couple weeks talking to all these people about all my very most important and burning game of thrones questions so then i come armed with these expert answers for you so paula fairfield who uh you and i have known for a few years thanks to this event called con of thrones that's where i think paula first popped on my radar because you went to an event sort of a discussion she was giving anyway she does all the sounds for the dragon what's interesting about these characters, the dragons, Rhaegal, Viserion, and Drogon, is that these are characters that are shaped by, you know, there isn't like really a human performance behind these characters unless you count like Paula, who does the sounds for them, or the people who do the VFX for them. They sort of shape what this is. So I had this really cool conversation with her on this podcast, still watching, just sort of trying to drill down on like, all right, how much of what the dragon does is, is like laid out in the script for you. How much is, are these decisions that the VFX crew makes by like the various expressions on the dragon's faces? And then how much can you Paula then go in and alter our understanding of that performance with the sounds you make? And do you ever get feedback that you really like miss the mark with, you know, the sound is too ferocious or the sound is too playful or whatever. And she's like, yeah, you know, like, no, mostly Paula nails it, but like occasionally she gets feedback. And so, um, it's, that's that's really kind of interesting to think about it. You know, it's it's not new in the era of CG generated creatures, but I think a lot of the times we can point to a human behind it, like an Andy Serkis, a Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, a Sean Gunn on <laughs> the Guardians of the Galaxy who plays Rocket Raccoon, like something like that. But um, here it's these artisans who craft this performance, and I think that's so interesting. So anyway, Paula has this like hilarious personal theory. She stresses that it is by no means canon, but Paula has this theory about um, how she thinks Drogon is the reincarnation of Khal Drogo and, uh, <laughs> and that he, uh, that he is like very territorial when it comes to Daenerys in that way. Paula was sort of describing the last, last season when John goes up to, to touch Drogon for the first time and stuff like that. Um, you know, it seemed very clear that Drogon was like letting him do that you know what right. i mean like i'm right. gonna let you touch me um and then he sort of gives like a show of strength uh in terms of like you know then launching off the cliff and john sort of like stands back in awe or whatever and um and paula's interpretation of that scene was sort of uh, drogon saying like all right bro i see you but remember like I'm the only one she rides or like she only rides me or something like that so i don't know i see it as sort of this like weird alpha moment um people who live with dogs apparently recognize this moment when Rhaegal and uh, Drogon are staring at 
Daenerys and John making out, like maybe they're used to their their dogs looking at them when they're having their sort of like intimate, intimate yeah. bedroom moments. But um, I couldn't help but think of Paula uh, talking to me about that. So that that's over on the Still Watching podcast. If you look for, she's so uh, you know you've seen her talk, Dave. She's so she's great, she's great, endlessly yeah. entertaining. Uh, so to listen to her talk about shaping, you know, and I texted her, you know jumping ahead to the end of the episode really quickly as soon as uh there was you know there's a there's a memorable shriek in this episode and i texted paula immediately i was like did you do that shriek what is it blah, blah, blah. and she was like yep yep that's me betty so um oh, you're on yeah. text you are in textual terms with paula fairfield that's very cool i mean um, <laughs> so the here's the here's the big issue for me with the John and Danny storyline, as much as I love the idea of them falling in love and uh, this, their relationship, uh, her being his aunt being very complicating for things and how like, that's going to be very interesting to see play out. I just think these actors have absolutely zero chemistry with each other. Uh, How do you feel about that? I think they have like really playful chemistry with each other, but it doesn't strike me as like this burning, epic, sweeping, romantic. Right, which I think it should, it's supposed it's meant to be, right? You know, it yeah. feels like it is. Yeah. You know, Amelia and Kit have talked about how they, um, you know, they've they've been these pals for so long, and they just sort of burst out laughing when they have to kiss each other, and it's sort of yeah, that's what it feels it, like. That's it comes like. through to me, yeah, <laughs> you know. I, agree. I, I I think it comes through in that way. So yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think who does have burning chemistry on the show. I'm I'm gonna go back to my favorite duo, Brian and pa- uh, Brian and uh, Jamie, not Brian and Pod, Brian and Jamie. Like yeah. I think Nicola Costa, Waldo, and Gwendolyn Christie have this like magnetic thing um that they just like have to look at each other and i'm like yeah i feel that and then um i don't think uh, john and danny have that no i think that john has more chemistry with his sisters than he does with uh with Danny. oh you're which... you're about to delight are you aware of the of the uh, quote-unquote shipping wars that has rocked the game of thrones fandom yeah for <laughs> I those of you are... I, 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 I give me a little taste of it i don't want a full <laughs> I don't want a full spoonful. Um, but yeah, so shipping, right, for those who don't know, is like people rooting for a relationship to happen. Uh, yeah. And what are the shipping wars happening right now? Oh, uh, this 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 sort of nuts thing happened last season um, <laughs> where, you know, you get these divided factions. You've got the, some folks are really rooting for Sansa and Jon to be together, which grosses me out because they, they were raised together as brother and sister. And even though he's related to both of them, like one, Sansa is his cousin and Daenerys is his aunt, the cousin thing sort of creeps me out because they were raised as you know, sort of that nature nurture thing. Anyway, uh, that's the Johnsa. That's John and Sansa um, versus I think it's like Daenerys. I forget what the Daenerys one is or um, but uh, what has been so fascinating to watch in these shipping wars are people believe that Sansa and John belong together. People believe Daenerys and John belong together. The scripts, I will say I've read the scripts. The scripts bear out that John and Daenerys are in love with each other. So like, that is what is supposed to be happening. Right. But then you have scenes in this episode where like Sansa confronts John and she's like, did you bend the knee because you know, you love her. Yeah. And it seemed like, like Sophie Turner was playing that like slightly romantically. And I, I just, I was like, is, are they playing into this fandom thing? I don't know. But, but that shipping war has been so fascinating to watch because if you, if you, are a certain level of deep in the Game of Thrones fandom and you talk about either Sansa or Daenerys on Twitter, 
you will be attacked by one side or the other. It's not just who they think belongs together. The Daenerys John Shippers hate Sansa and the Sansa John Shippers hate Daenerys. And it is this nuts thing. And that's why I was sort of really uh, bracing myself for um, the, the, the tension between Sansa Daenerys in this episode. Cause I was like, I have watched this play out in the fandom. I don't need it on the screen. I would much rather these two women like come together and share their trauma. And maybe that's, what's going to happen. You know, like I, I don't know that this is going to last all season, this tension between them, but uh, it's, it's fascinating. And it's a fascinating, it's a very recent development in the fandom because like, you know, that all happened last season. And then you had this long off season where people had no new episodes. So they just got like deeper and entrenched into their, um, their corners. And I, you know, anyway, sorry. Thank you for, thank you for attending my <laughs> Ted talk on, <laughs> on the shipping wars of game of Thrones, but it's definitely a thing. Is, uh, uh, Garia also a ship like between Gendry and Arya? Is that? Is I think that it's like it's like Gendria. Um, Gendria. I think yeah, that's better yeah. than Garia. <laughs> <laughs> Garia, I think, is an MTV animated TV show. Mm, nice, um, nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, Gendria. Yeah, absolutely, that's a thing for sure. And and I'm I'm all for it personally. I mean, I don't think they have chemistry that oozes off the page. But what I like about the Gendry and Arya stuff is that. Um, it feels their awkwardness around each other feels completely natural to the circumstance of like, I knew you from long ago and I'm meeting you again. And when I knew you from long ago, I was a child and I had a crush on you. And now I'm kind of an adult and this is actually could be in the realm of reality now. Right. And so I don't quite know, you know, I, I really liked their, you know, their flirtation slash awkwardness and what i liked about it so much is that um sorry i don't know if we're like bounce around at this point yeah let's, let's do just it. do it let's um do what it. i what i liked is that the element of their courtship is this like weapon that she wants him to build her it's not oh, you yeah. know so it's Br- not like a, a dress or anything you know what i mean it's like it's like hey you're a smith i'm a badass assassin make me a weapon i'm like what could be more romantic honestly <laughs> When so the break, apocalypse is coming, break it down for us, Joanna. Like, what is the weapon? Like, you've you've probably analyzed the piece of paper, right? Like, what what is going on there? Um, you're going to get really bored of me saying this, but once again, I did an interview with Tommy Dunn, who's the weapons master on Game of Thrones, and he's amazing. He's so cool. Um, and I, I talked to him for the still watching podcast uh, a couple weeks ago, and he told me very obliquely, he was like, there's a showstopper weapon. It, it we had to reverse engineer it. It breaks apart. Um, you know, I'm really excited for people to see it. He didn't like tell me what it was or whatever. And then when the episode aired, I emailed him. I was like, "Is it this?" He's like, "He's like, uh, let's talk more when the episode itself, the like the weapon itself gets revealed on the show." But hmm. we just saw the schematics. But basically, it's um, it's what looks like a and you know, I know you don't watch uh trailers for the show but i think if you've seen previews for the season you you've maybe seen some hints of um this weapon coming to fruition but it uh breaks in apart in half like unscrews so it's like one long weapon with a dragon class tip and i think a valyrian steel tip on the mm. other side so basically it has like two pointy ends um, so there's like that whole Darth, like Darth Maul style, basically. <laughs> yes, I love that. Um, and then it can break apart into two shorter um, 
you know, sort of stabbing weapons. And what I, the reason I think they put this together is like her, the needle, needle is a cool weapon, her, her sword and, and the dagger is a cool weapon, but they're somewhat limiting in what they offer Maisie Williams, uh, in terms of fight choreography potential. But, like, the Brienne and Arya fight was so cool last season. Uh, people really, really loved it. And Maisie Williams is quite, you know, she's got a stunt double, but she's quite good at fight choreography. And so I think they wanted to give her, like, a really versatile weapon that she could just show off this season. And so if you've got this, something that is, like, a long polar staff. And we saw Arya train with a staff when she was in the House of Black and White, right? So you've got, like, a long sort of staff-like thing that can slash and stab on both sides and then break apart for shorter range slashing and stabbing. Um, I think it's going to be like, and, and we've never seen anything I think like that uh, even in, in fantasy film and television. So I think it's really cool to give Aria who someone, you know, for better, or for worse, we've seen go through a lot of training and like, so we're going to want to see her use all that training this season and to give her a tool to do that and to let Gendry, who she's known since, you know, season one, be the person who makes it for her. I just, I love all of that together, you know? Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, gives you a lot to look forward to. And I'm very curious to see, like, what the realization of her using that weapon is going to be. I hope it's cool. I trust that it will be. So, uh, and there's kind of callbacks in that scene when she meets Gendry again to, I think the last time they saw each other was season two. Um, they had like a lot of adventures in season two and, uh, talks about like, uh, he says like, you know, uh, you would be my lady. And like, there's this kind of, uh, (laughs) this, this casual flirtation callback stuff going on there, uh, which I really appreciated. And then she also meets the hound as well. And, uh, they have a very tense interaction, but it's got, it's all, there's, despite the, what's going on on the surface, there's a lot of love there. You know, there's a lot of love there between... <laughs> Despite him calling her a bitch, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the last time Gendry and Arya saw each other was season three. Um, the last time uh, the Hound and Arya saw each other was season four. And yeah. this is, like, I think we talked about this last season, but this is just such, like, a, a somewhat hard lift that the show has to do with all these, like, fraught reunions. Yep. Um, and trying to sort of recap each other and the audience on like when last we met. So you have to have the hound come up to Arya. I don't know if you have to, but you have the hound come up to Arya and say like, last time I saw you, you left me for dead. And she's like, I robbed you first. And then they like basically turn to camera and be like, and that's previously on the hound and Arya's relationship. You know what I mean? Like they have to hit those over and over again. And some... Some of them they land better than others. My favorite example was well Dion. I, before before you move yeah. on from that. I mean, I think um, it, it, this is not uh, widely known, John Robinson, but that scene was actually a reshoot because I don't know if you heard, but Cardi B does the exact same thing. She robs people and leaves them for dead, and uh, they decided to incorporate that into the show. I just pointed that out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just joking. That's not what actually happened, but it was strikingly similar to that recent Cardi B story that happened. Uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on, you were saying Theon. No, no, no. I was just saying that I, <laughs> when, when Theon and John met each other last season after so long apart, that's my favorite version of this kind of oh, thing. They yeah. had this like tense beach confrontation and stuff like that. And so like some of them work better than others. Some of them just have to be like passing lines of dialogue. Cause you don't have the time to dedicate to all of it. Um, and so some of it really lands and some of it, you're kind of like, eh. 
So like the Gendry Arya stuff really landed for me. The Hounds Arya stuff, like I'm hoping we get a little bit more than, and we might, but a little bit more than we saw in this episode. Uh, yeah, and there's also the John Arya uh, reunion as well, and right. th- that was a great one because you know he gave her that sword. Um, in your article, I love that you point out that you know she's killed, she's used the sword a couple times. She's killed a lot of dudes, but in fact, she's, she's really only used the sword to kill people uh, a handful of times, like two or three times, right? Um, yeah. So Still a lot of a lot of dagger work, Arya Stark. A lot of a little short range stabbing. Um, the the thing I love about the Arya and John reunion is not just like the the visual callback to that like leaping hug that she gave him goodbye mm. in season one, because that's there that's expected. Like we knew that Thrones was going to do that. <laughs> like how could they resist? Um, what I actually really love is that that scene starts out, you know, he says, how did you sneak up on me? And she says, how did you survive a knife through the heart? And he says, I didn't. And that actually floored me because Jon Snow never talks about dying. Ever like last season when um, he met Daenerys, Davos started to like talk about how you know to defend John. He's like he died for his people. He took a knife in the heart, and John's like not now. Davos, be cool. Like, <laughs> and he just like doesn't talk about this thing that happened, and that's always really bothered me because I'm like, why does why isn't everyone always talking about the fact that Jon Snow died and came back to life. Like that is a huge thing. No one ever talks about it. And sort of the show's explanation of that is that, Oh, John's a modest fellow and he wouldn't go around talking about it. And sort of like, okay, I can kind of buy that. But then I love that he just straight up like says it to Arya because they've got this deeper connection. You know, they were each other's favorites growing up in this household where they've both sort of felt like outsiders, like they didn't belong there. And um, they had this affinity. And in the books, there's a lot of moments where, you know, John thinks about missing Arya and Arya thinks about missing John, you know? So like their connection is stronger, much stronger than their connection with anyone else in their family. And so there needed to be something in this moment that was more intimate than a hug, than the hug that Sansa and John shared, um, you know, when they reunited back in season six. And Mm. so I think this moment of like, I died because he doesn't talk about it is that moment. And I, I really appreciated that that was in there. Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you bring up a good point, which is that like John is, is a modest fellow, right? Like he doesn't like to be like throughout this episode, he's like rejecting his place as uh king of the North as uh, eventually, right. As the rightful heir to the throne um, as a guy who came back to life. Um, so, uh, I think that's, a, that's kind of his central struggle is, is being modest, but you know, if you don't want to be modest, John Robinson, you mean, if you want to be more like a Euron Greyjoy, you want to be more of a Euron <laughs> rather than a John, <laughs> why be a John when you can be a Euron, <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, have we got the product for you from our third sponsor movement watches. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of things you could say about me, David Chen. But uh, one and of them, and, and she does all the time <laughs> behind my back. Um, but one of them is not stylish. I'm not a particularly stylish fellow. I get most of my clothes from Costco, which is a fact that I'm going to reference many times throughout the course of this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, one thing that uh, I recognize immediately when our sponsor Movement Watches approached us is uh, that man, these watches look good. So like. Movement watches basically are uh, high-quality, good-looking watches 
that are really affordable. They start at just $95. Uh, yeah. So you're guaranteed to find something you love that won't break your bank. Uh, and also, like, I love the story behind it, too, because, like, they, they are a ground-up entrepreneur success story. It was started by uh, these people in college, right, who basically they, – they, they launched on Indiegogo. And they were frustrated. They weren't able to find decent watches that were affordable. They raised over $300,000. They started with one watch model. They grew organically, and now they have over, they've sold over 2 million watches in over 160 countries. Um, so yeah, I mean, not only that, like we each have a movement watch and I mean, this thing is so good. It's like, it's basically outranks the rest of my, uh, wardrobe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it, I got this, I got this, I got this really cool one. It's called the black rose, mm. which feels very Game of Thronesy, Right. Um, but it, it's, it looks almost like, I don't know, I'm wearing this like flashy bit of dragon glass on my wrist. It's really, really cool. And like, yeah, it's flashier than I usually wear. And like, I had so, genuinely it's so many people comment on it. They were like, Whoa, that is amazing. Um, and these these watches are all just like there's there's tons of different styles. So you can find one that suits you. But all of them are like somewhat flashy. And so it's just sort of like, do you want to go out and just have people go, I'm sorry, what is that you're wearing? That is amazing. Then that is what movement watches can offer you. Yeah, uh, I have the white checker caramel one. It looks amazing. Uh, check or wipe caramel, I should say. And uh, I'm a big fan of it. So, Joanna Robinson, I think we have a deal for our listeners. Dave, nothing but deals today. <laughs> um, you can get 15% off today with free shipping, free returns. Going to movement.com slash cast. That's mvmt.com slash cast. See why movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to movement.com slash cast. Yeah, that's mvmt dot com slash cast uh, and thanks to movement watches for sponsoring us this week so we we're talking about how uh, you don't want to be john you want to be Euron. a lot of stuff going on with Euron this week he kind of <laughs> taunts uh yara in a scene on his boat um and then kind of goes to see cersei he's br- he's bringing the uh these mercenaries with him from bravos right yeah the golden company golden company right which are basically a bunch of swords. the idea is that like Cersei has made a huge, has taken out a huge loan from the Iron Bank, if I'm uh, correct, and has used it to pay for these mercenaries that she's going to use to fight the war to come, which is presumably going to be with the North because she's decided to portray them, right? Uh, and uh, Euron has used his ships to kind of bring these people back, uh, and all he wants to do is is conquest the Queen. That's that's really all he's up for, right? Right. Uh, and so he says, oh, like, wh- I, I'm so heartbroken. Maybe I'm not e- going to let you use all my ships for things. And then Cersei kind of uh, lets him sleep with her. Kind of gives his look back. Uh, uh, what did you? In- how did you interpret that look back that she gave in that throne room? She starts walking away. She looks back at him. Uh, what did you think of that look? Um, I, I couldn't help but hear the words of Stannis Baratheon ringing in my ear when he goes, Go on, do your duty. She was just sort of like, re- <laughs> nice resigned. Stannis impression, nicely done. <laughs> Thank you. She's like resigned. I don't know. She's yeah. sort of like, all right, here we go. Okay. Yeah, um, that felt yeah. like a, a woman to me who had hit rock bottom, right? Like oh, yeah. all her her kids are all dead. Uh-huh. Uh, her her lover slash brother has betrayed her uh, and taken north, and so she's got she got nothing left, and so she's like, why not? So they have this uh, post-coital discussion, 
And it, it's funny, like Euron's being very flashy and like apparently she's into it to some degree. And he start, starts touching her belly, which is kind of weird to do after a first date. Uh, trust me on that one. And is like, uh, wants to put a prince in her belly is what he says. How do I compare to the fat king? You're insulting my late husband. Are you offended? Robert had a different whore every night. But he still didn't know his way around a woman's body. And the king's there? You enjoy risking your neck, don't you? Life is boring. You're not boring. I'll give you that. <sighs> Do I please the queen? You might be the most arrogant man I've ever met. Now I want to be alone. I'm going to put a prince in your belly. That's not your go-to move? It's not my go-to move. Oh. I'm, I'm more of a dragon to waterfall kind of guy. <laughs> um, so he promised to put a prince in her belly. There's a few weird things about this scene. Yeah. First of all, uh, she's drinking alcohol, which, uh, like, uh, I, I recall that, like, in last season, wasn't the fact that she wasn't drinking alcohol a sign that she was pregnant? Okay, so uh, here's what here's what yeah. I've been given given to understand. Tell me what's going on. Uh, is that alcohol has no connection to like pregnancy in Game of Thrones? Oh, there's no fetal alcohol syndrome in Westeros. I mean, it's there, but they don't know it or whatever. <laughs> yeah, they haven't figured they haven't figured it out. Yet. Um, <laughs> they haven't figured it out. Yet. <laughs> so, uh, so that's the thing. The I've been told that, um, or my understanding is that when. Tyrion sort of looked at her last season and was like, oh, um, you're pregnant. It was because she was like sort of rubbing her belly mm. and not because she refused to drink the wine. I see. Uh, I think it is extremely confusing. If that's the case, I think it was extremely confusing the way that those things were put together. But that is my understanding. And so the fact that she is drinking wine in the scene has like has no bearing on the fact of whether or not she's still pregnant. Um, I believe you know, um, I read the season seven scripts. Uh, I believe that she is pregnant. I don't believe she's lying. So I believe that she is still pregnant with Jamie's baby. And like the look that Lena Headey gives, which is so good is, um, like fuck. Uh, I, uh, yeah, the, that rock bottom look that like, uh, I wish it were Jamie who was here because oh well, that, yeah, there's that look that she she gives like right yeah. before the camera cuts away. And yeah, that, that was beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah. But the 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 pregnancy thing is also like, is it possible that she sees Euron as like a way out of this situation and like as a way out of this pregnancy situation, like admitting that her brother impregnated her? Well, you know? but what's what's sad? I mean, I don't know if you want to say what's sad for Cersei or whatever, <laughs> but like Cersei had decided last season when she was just really feeling the height of her powers, she's like Jamie. Like she, she tells Jamie she's pregnant. He's like, oh shit, who are we going to say is the father? Like, let's get back on our lives again because that's what their life has always been. It's sort of like they've got these blonde haired babies, but they had King Robert to cover. And so like their whole life and the whole plot of season one of Game of Thrones is about like lying about the paternity of Cersei's kids. Right. Um, but last season when, when Jamie says, who are we going to say is the father? She's like, you like, fuck them. Like I'm the queen. Right. Right. If I if I want to have a baby by my brother, I'm going to do it. And now I think it's just sort of like, 
all right, we're back to the old thing, which is pretending that this chuckle fuck here is the father of my baby. Like, right. uh, great. So here we go. So do you think, do you think, did you interpret that as being the plan for her or? I, it's hard to say, but, yeah. but I, I think that that's probably likely that her plan is, you know, perhaps to pass the baby off as Euron's. Um, yeah. so, uh, I, I, in my work discussion group today, they also brought up the, the fact that like, if things go south or if things go badly with the White Walkers at, she could theoretically retreat to the Iron Islands with Euron, right? Like, is that 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 might be a possible? Oh, path. maybe, uh, yeah, because we get this this um, info from Yara that Yara is going to go. You know, Theon rescues Yara. She headbutts him to say thank you for abandoning me last season. Yeah. Um, and then you know she but says then, I'm going to go. Then reaches out to him, which I thought was a great kind of. Oh yeah. The, like I thought the Theon Yara stuff was brutally rushed but the idea of headbutting someone and then reaching down to pull them up is a great like it's a great concise way of summarizing their relationship i I love the gray joys i care a lot those two i love yara and theon theon especially is one of my favorites on the show but like uh you're right that it was very rushed but because she's been like away for months or weeks or months at this point and then oh all of a sudden like bloop we rescued her like, don't, don't, they don't need what? to show the planning. They don't need to show, like, it was apparently super I, easy. You know, yeah. Anyway. I gotta say, I don't, I don't really, in the final season of Game of Thrones, I don't need an Ocean's Eleven sort of like <laughs> with Theon <laughs> trying to break out your well, That's where you and it. I differ, but okay. <laughs> um, I, do I wish they had more time together before, you know, apparently they part ways again? More than one brief scene? Yes. But, uh, you know, Yara's plan is to go take the Iron Islands back because the dead can't swim. So she feels like she's safe on an island. And then, and then, you know, if that's the case, maybe we need to think about what other places on, in Westeros are islands. There's Dragonstone. My my thinking is that like if the zombie situation gets too bad on Westeros and the Seven Kingdoms, why doesn't everyone just move to Essos? There are yeah. no zombies there. I'm just saying. Well, also the dead have a dragon now, so like can the dragon fly over water? You know, like yeah, knows? but it's like how many dead can you fit on the dragon? Is is yeah. are you gonna like gather the dead all in like a big net, and then the dragon's <laughs> gonna like gather them up in his talons and sort of like you know Operation Dumbo drop them over Essos or something like that? I, mean, I, I think we all know, know the answer to that question is yes. Um, <laughs> So the, the, the other thing about this Cersei Euron stuff is uh, the like when she's um, rubbing her belly. It, oh, oh yeah. So what do you make of the fact that I I want to say season four uh, we got that flashback to Cersei getting that um, that witch five. kind of like yeah predicting her her future kids yeah. all dying and she only, I think she only predicted three kids right so like how do you square that with the fact that she might be pregnant again? Do we, do we now believe that this baby will never be born? I have been ringing that bell for a while now because I think that there are clues. So Cersei in the books, which, you know, obviously long ago in her timeline, (laughs) (laughs) when, when last George R. R. Martin left her, um, there are hints that she might be pregnant um, based on like, her clothes are tighter <laughs> like you know Cersei you're in Cersei's point of view right uh because that's how the the George R. R. Martin's books are written and she's like oh my my dresses are all tighter oh I really need to like my my washerwoman has really shrunk my laundry again and you're kind of like babe yeah I think I think you're pregnant <laughs> um but then she has these prophetic dreams 
So we don't even know that Cersei's pregnant in the books, but we think she probably is. And then she has these prophetic dreams that sort of also indicate that she will probably miscarry. So my guess would be that this baby will not come to terms, mm. come to term. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that the show is going to go that route, but that would be my guess. And, um, what will that do to Cersei? And what will that do to Tyrion's whole argument? Which is like the reason that Tyrion believes that Cersei's helping him is because she has something to live for because she's pregnant. And so if she miscarries, like, I don't, I do not think she's lying. I think the script bears out that she's not lying. I don't know why she would sort of quietly in private touch her belly meditatively if she was lying. Like, I don't believe Cersei's lying about a pregnancy. But I also don't believe that that baby will ever be born. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, all right, well, we got to zip through a bunch of stuff at Winterfell uh, before we wrap up this episode today. Uh, and so Daenerys and Jorah go to visit Sam in the Winterfell library. Uh, there is this kind of extremely awkward scene, right, where she realizes that she has accidentally... Uh, no, not accidentally, but she's like, she, yeah, she's like, wait, you don't mean so and so. Um, but she she has killed her uh, Samuel Tarley's uh, father and brother. And a lot of people have pointed out, like, well, why would he give a crap about his father? His father was an asshole. I think what is intended in the show is that, and the showrunner said this in the kind of the after show breakdown, right? That like his reaction to his. Uh, father dying was like not it was kind of sad but like not that sad and then but then he like really gets heartbroken when he learns his brother's dead it's so um, funny because like I, I i watched that after interview and i got really uh frustrated with weiss and benioff because um bless them because um <laughs> they wreck you know like so dick on tarly shows up in season six played by a different actor when they, when like Sam goes home with Gilly and they have this like really terrible dinner yeah. with you know the Tarleys. It's a different actor and he is an absolute monster to Sam. Oh, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah. and then they recast the actor with Tom Hopper in season seven. And then he's like, actually kind of nice. He's like, nice dick on now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they like really retconned that character. Yeah. And so when they're like, they're like, yeah, you know, Sam had an issue with his dad, but he loved his brother. And I was like, um, because you rewrote the character entirely, <laughs> I guess like that really bothered me. So I, ta I, um, once again, um, uh, on on the Still Watching podcast today, in fact, I talked to John Bradley about that scene and about um, how, you know, his interpretation of why would Sam be upset about this particular, uh, you know, moment in his life. And he had just some great stuff to say, I thought, where he was talking about how he read a, he read an article years ago where um, if you lose, a, to, you know, to start with his dad, Randall, if you if you lose a father or if you lose a parent that you get along with really well versus the parent that you don't get, haven't gotten along with that you have a lot of tension with, you're actually more likely to grieve and be more emotionally troubled by the parent that you didn't get along with because then you have all these unresolved issues. And John yeah. Bradley told me that director David Nutter, who directed this episode sort of leaned into him right before he did it like gave this take and said, he said to him, it's never going to be better now. You're never going to be able to make it better now, you right, know? Right. And it was just like, woof. Okay. And then he said with Dickon, he, he has not forgotten that dinner. <laughs> like Weiss and Benioff may have forgotten that dinner, but he is not. He was just like, he's like, I think I see Dickon as a, as a victim of toxic masculinity. And mm. like, I have reserves of empathy for that. And I think Sam has reserves of empathy for that too. So like John Bradley, I mean, like, I agree that you're sort of like, why are you so upset about the death of these two guys who treated you badly? But at the same time, John Bradley's performance 
is so incredible. I think in that scene, like he's just, I like, he's one of those characters that if he's upset, I'm upset. So like, um, I, I, that really mattered to me. Like yeah. Sam being upset really mattered to me. And I really liked what John Bradley had to say in terms of like how he, he made that all make sense to him and his performance. Yeah. I thought he nailed it. He did a great job in this scene. I do think it is a little odd. Like he comes out and then Brand says, you have to tell John, it's time to tell John the news now. And uh, my reaction is like, well, why didn't they just tell John when he got there? That feels like pretty important, you know? And the reason they didn't tell John is because the script said they needed to wait until Sam was emotionally invested in telling John. And, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I, I, get, I get why they did it that way, but you can kind of see the seams. You can kind of see the puppet master at work here. Because like when someone tells John that information, you want that to be like a really consequential, powerful scene. Right, you can't just have like Brand drop that info on him immediately uh, in a like detached way, because then that wouldn't be dramatically satisfying. Even though it would make sense, right? It's not like the most interesting thing to watch. Um, so I, I understood why they did it, but it's kind of like, oh well, you know, it seems really convenient that they waited until after Sam had this brutal meeting with Danny uh, to have this scene. Well, what also feels true is that, um, and and also the thing the thing that is so troubling about that scene, and and John Bradley talked about this, is like that Daenerys offers him like no real comfort in that moment, and neither does Jorah, which really bumped me out. <laughs> Jorah just like they just stand there, yeah. Like, let it's him so cry. it's so awkward. It's and so then awkward. he ha he has to excuse himself from his own like <laughs> library in Winterfell. I was like, come on. Yeah, you um, went into his space. That's yeah, not cool. exactly. Yeah. Leave. Yeah. Thank you. Jorah, this man saved your life. Give him like a pat on the back. What the fuck? Anyway, um, I was really disappointed in Jorah. But um, I agree with you that the only reason the episode has room for to give Sam this space to have this emotional reaction is so that, you know, he will have this motivation later. Like we talked about like readings that get glossed over or information that gets glossed over and what doesn't. And this is one of those moments that it feels like they didn't gloss over because they needed us to really feel that emotion from Sam so that it could bring this extra spark. Your mother was Leanna Stark. And your father, your real father, was Rhaegar Targaryen. You've never been a bastard. You are Aegon Targaryen, true heir to the Iron Throne. I'm sorry, I know it's a lot to take in. your mother he'd always protect you and he did robert would have murdered you if he knew you're the true king Aegon targaryen sixth of his name protector of the realm all of it the the scene with john learning about who he is is going to be a little bit inert because we already have this information right. yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah, i mean yeah, yeah. so they need to bring some other dynamic to it they need so to, to spice bring it up a little bit yeah you know? so they... just 
Spice it up with a salt of Samuel Tarly's tears. Why not? Oh, um, nice. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, the only thing that, and I'm, I'm kind of okay with all of it because I like Sam and I, I like that there's room for him to do this. The only thing that I didn't like about that is that there's this weird like off-camera pratfall that starts the scene. Like Sam comes down into the Winterfell Crips and like falls down and we don't see him. We just like hear it. And then John goes to help him up. And I guess it's supposed to show us like he's distracted and upset and t- you know tired and all this sort of stuff, but I was just sort of like, what is this off camera? Wacky, platform? it's wacky, yeah. very wacky. What a, yeah. what a wacky episode. <laughs> yeah, wacky episode. Um, so yeah, they have this confrontation, and and so Sam basically like, not only are you the rightful heir, but you would actually be better at the job than Danny, right? And we're gonna see how John deals with that. Um, so any other thoughts on that scene, and any kind of closing thoughts on the episode, John Robinson? Well, we haven't talked about. Oh yeah, we haven't talked um, about the last thing, right? Yeah. The the two last things, two and last then we things. also really just really need to briefly mention we skipped over the fact that um, Kyburn has commissioned Braun to assassinate Jaime and uh, Tyrion Lannister using the crossbow that Tyrion Lannister used to kill Tywin. Uh, so so Braun, in theory, is on a mission, a mercenary mission for Cersei to murder Jamie and Tyrion. Whether he goes through with that or double crosses Cersei, we will find out. Um, I don't know the answer. You know, like sometimes I know things. I don't know the answer to that. But my sense is that Braun uh, is a is a mercenary and has always been a mercenary. And I don't think we should expect him to have some kind of like good guy motivation and well, all of he, this. He, he did like fan. risk his life to save Jamie's life last season. Um, kind of. I so. mean, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. With, with um, the dragon stuff. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yep. Um, I, I'm worried about the Braun stuff because I, I feel like Braun is at his best when he's a side character and I worry that yeah. they're going to try to give him an arc this season and I wonder like how that's going to go. I compared it to like when they tried to make Captain Jack Sparrow the main character of the Pirate series and like uh, I don't think that went super well because Bra- Braun is like kind of like yeah, uh, yeah, Braun is kind of like Captain Jack Sparrow. He's kind of like this guy who's like super competent. He shows up. He's super funny, you know, but like uh, I don't know that we care very much about Bronn's inner life, which is what we need to do if this plot line is going to come to a good fruition. So uh, maybe I don't know that he needs to be like the Captain Jack Sparrow of any kind of episode, even if he's on this mission. This 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 feels like it can be a side, uh, a hard side plot. Like it's a side plot in this episode. He yeah. gets you know, like a couple of minutes. We got our requisite nudity. We get an Ed Sheeran joke, uh, and then we move on with our lives. So there you go. So, any other thoughts on the crypt sequence? I, I, I think, like, I'm interested to see how John's going to take this information. Um, nobody, nobody has yet articulated the fact that Danny is John's aunt. Is that just like, is it, does everyone just get that? I guess, but like, no one said it out loud. Um, that's 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 the uh, you know the the showrunners always like to say that that Jon Snow is slow on the uptake, but he gets there eventually. I hope the cold open for next week's episode is John like sitting up, start like starting up in bed and being like, "Wait, that makes her my aunt." Or something like that. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I thought Kit did a good job. You know, like uh, given the fact that we already know this information and all the other things, I think Kit did a pretty good job processing uh, the you know as Jon Snow processing this stuff, um, especially the fact that his name is. Aegon, which sucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Anyway, uh, and then and then we get a horror movie, so that's fine. Yeah, two final scenes: one at Last Hearth, where Tormund, Beric, Ed, Ed comes back. That was super cool. They reunited. Ed's got, a little bit. Ed's got 
like a great beard. In yeah. It's looking good. good. Yeah. It's looking yeah. good. Um, uh, being forced to retreat from Castle Black has really done wonders for him. <laughs> uh, Lord Commander. <laughs> Lord yeah. Commander. Dollar said. Did you uh, shit your pants when the little kid's eyes opened as he was stapled against the wall? Um, uh, no, but it's awful, and that scream is awful. Uh, did you? Uh, yeah, shit your it was, pants I was then? freaked out. <laughs> I freaked out. It was like a great moment. Uh, that's like that's a good callback. Um, James Hibbert in his uh, Entertainment Weekly report uh, from the set had said something about the fact that like there would be a reference to the cold open from the uh, right. pilot, where there's also and, a child like nailed to a tree, right? Uh, in in then, the first episode of the series, yeah, right. Who then comes back and sort of stuff. So like this is this this sort of like pinned to the wall, uh, child uh, zombie sort of thing it felt very reminiscent of that. The the flaming pinwheel of limbs. Uh, just give us some extra horror. And yeah, it's a, we haven't really heard um, the, we heard the white scream a little bit. The whites being the like W I G H T, the zombies or whatever. We heard them scream last season in the beyond the wall, but like not quite like this. This felt like an extra level of Holy shit. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a horror, horror film. And it's so funny. Cause um, my editor, Katie rich, who, you know, uh, she messaged me. She's like, if this show turns into a zombie film, I swear to God. And I was like, I was like, it's too late. Like it is a zombie film. Like it's been a zombie film, uh, for a while now. I, so. I think the most hilarious. So you, in your article of Vanity Fair, you kind of speculated that it's the, the kind of spiral is similar to the, uh, Targaryen sigil. Oh, right? I, but, yeah. But I, I, think, I think that's complete bullshit. Um, I just, I was just re- like, Sometimes you you put something in an article and you just need to like nod to the fact that this is what people are talking about. Mm. You know what I mean? So like other people think it looks like that. I think it's complete BS that that I don't think that that's what they're trying to do. And let me be very clear right now with love and respect to the crackpot theorists. I don't think the Night King is a Targaryen. The Night King was created thousands of years before the Targaryens came to Westeros. There's no way that the Night King is Targaryen. Yes, I know only Targaryens are the dragon. But this is this is my this is our, our, our fresh out of the gate season eight bad fan theory mm. that that the the limbs on the wall mean that the Night King is a Targaryen. I don't think that that's the case. Well, some people have pointed out. So I, I that makes sense to me. Some people have pointed out that uh, the spiral represents like children of the forest. Um, yeah, cave paintings. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, and that that seems like much more plausible to me, considering the children of the forest are the people that like originated the uh, White Walkers in the first place, right? My my whole theory around this is that um, you know there we've seen this this symbol uh, over and over and over again, the spiral symbol, and like one of the, my favorite shots where we see it is there's an overhead shot of the weirwood tree um, where the Night King was made. And you can see that the stones sort of are laid out around it in the spiral pattern. So this is overhead shot. And then that's where we see the children of the forest make the Night King. And so this is like his, his original, what I've been calling it, and this sounds a little overblown, but it's like, it's his original wound. Like this is, you know, he was human turned into this monster and there's this spiral sort of imagery associated with that. And so he's just sort of like repeating that sort of imagery over and over again. But I don't think that it is, means anything beyond that. Uh, my my favorite part of this scene is imagining the Night King uh, nailing all those body parts to the wall like he's a freaking Jackson Pollock or something like that. Like he's like he's like a little bit to the left, you know. Like like how hard does he really work on? Like that takes a lot of work to like. It goes, put that... 
It goes really high up too. So someone else suggested to me that they had to like get on each other's shoulders. Get on a ladder or something. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just yeah, like yeah. what is so yeah. ridiculous. I mean, because in the first episode, like laying them out on the ground, right? Uh, season one, episode one, like laying them yeah, out on yeah. the ground. Like that makes that makes sense. You know, you, you could do that in like an afternoon. But like really going to the trouble of nailing it to the wall. Anyway. Um, so, uh, uh, final sequence, uh, a mysterious hooded man, uh, <laughs> arrives in Winterfell and you pointed out very, very aptly that like it, it mirrors the scene in season one, episode one, when Jamie arrives in Winterfell, removes his helmet he, in, in this episode, he removes his, his hood. Um, and of course he's coming to Winterfell in much different circumstances this time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of a raging asshole in the first episode. Uh, season one, episode one, and now he's returning uh, as somebody who has seen some shit. Uh, and then he sees Bran from across the way, and that's the first time they've ever encountered each other since he pushed Bran out the window. Uh, and even if Bran didn't have psychic powers, he would have known that it was Jamie that did it, probably. Uh, my favorite meme about this is like showing this scene, but with the Curb Your Enthusiasm music. I thought that was very, very nice. Um uh, any closing thoughts on this scene? Closing thoughts on the episode, John Robinson? Um, I think it's great. This is this is a you know, Brand says he's waiting for an old friend. Here's here's Jamie Lannister's reckoning, his moral reckoning, having like this this idea of Winterfell as a as a, a nexus of moral reckoning for certain characters, having to uh, deal with the ghosts of their own past, I think is really fascinating. Um, I love this shot. Nicola Costa my fave, like nails this wordless sort of horror um, at seeing, at not knowing who Bran is and that, wait, who's that? Oh shit. Like you see all of that, like go across his face. It's pretty great. And, and something that I pointed out in an article on BF uh, last night is that it's not just Jamie who has to come reckon with Bran because you know, in theory, Theon's coming back to Winterfell and Theon did horrible, awful things to Bran as well. Um, and so this idea of these like sort of broken, morally broken figures coming back home to Winterfell and Winterfell being this like sort of Ned Stark infused source of like honor um, is is really fascinating to me uh, thematically. I really like it. All right. Well, overall thoughts on this episode, if you had to give it a letter grade. Uh, any uh, thoughts? Like a B plus. I don't know. Like it's it's very silly in places, but they also have just like a lot of work to do in terms of moving all these pieces around. It's sort of like how I feel about uh, Infinity War, where I'm like, I really Avengers Infinity War. I really admire the. Oh, work. Avengers Infinity War. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> it's, la- like, it's late. It's late. We're recording late. Where? Where? Um. Well, I didn't want to like veer into Marvel without warning people. <laughs> We're talking about Marvel now, but like where where you have to just like sit back and kind of admire the amount of work it takes to move to hand, to juggle all these moving parts. So to deal with all these people coming to Winterfell, all these reunions, all these dynamics in a way that didn't just feel like Oh hey, it's you. Oh hey, it's you. Oh hey, it's you. Over and over again. Plus, Jon Snow wrote a freaking dragon. Like all this stuff happened in this episode. Um, it's it's yeah, it's a little sillier than I like my Thrones, but like I really do think that the <laughs> later in the season I will be missing the silliness. Right. So um, you know, maybe maybe enjoy the the giggles while we can because um, winter is coming. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I would also give it like a B plus. 
the strongest elements, right? The uh, all those reunions, right? John had uh, loved uh, reunions like all the characters had at Winterfell. Every reunion I thought was pretty strong, um, and I thought the weakest stuff with was the John with Danny dragon stuff Theon Yara stuff wrapped up way too quickly in my opinion she's like go be with Winterfell people uh that just felt like oof like they're really alighting vast portions of what that relationship should be um but maybe it'll pay off in the end when Theon gets to Winterfell and they can finally uh have a reckoning there so uh overall fan of the episode looking forward to the rest of the season so uh I think that's going to about do it for this week's episode of A Cast of Kings. We want to thank our sponsors this week, Hunt a Killer, HelloFresh, and Movement Watches. This episode was produced by Baby Zhang. You can find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can also email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. That's acastofkings at gmail.com. Until next week, John Robinson, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Oh, VanityFair.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at JoeRothis. I'm making two YouTube videos per month at youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Subscribe to me there. I also have a newsletter, davechen.net slash letters. You can sign up to get emails from me there. Uh, And you can follow me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.